to our next voyage on T-10, the show with 10-minute takes on the future of education in healthcare. I'm your host, Tim Fitzpatrick. On today's voyage, you'll hear from Dr. Shamander Gupta, the Chief Medical Officer at Monogram Health. Shami and his team are on a mission to transform the way care is delivered to chronic kidney disease patients. You may have seen Monogram's recent partnerships with Advent Health, Cigna, or Banner, or their recent financing with strategic backers including Humana and Scan Group. As you'll hear in a minute, Dr. Gupta and his team share a vision for using innovative and tech-driven services to improve long-term management for their patients, especially when it comes to providing social support for rural populations and home-based care options. We are ready to go. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Shami Gupta, Chief Medical Officer at Monogram Health. All right, welcome back to the show. I am here with Dr. Gupta, who is Chief Medical Officer at Monogram Health. Dr. Gupta, first of all, it's great to see you again. I'm really glad to have you on, and I want to jump right in and ask you a question about monogram health in particular and that whole idea of being as personalized as a monogram. What what does that mean to you and your role and obviously to the organization and how you think about kidney care? Uh, Thanks, Tim, for the invitation today. Really excited to be here. So just a little bit of background real quick. Uh, I'm a nephrologist and been practicing for over 17 years, and I worked in a rural area where I was able to, quote, personalize the care I gave to my patients, you know, being the direct the direct deliverer of care as opposed to having extenders allows you to get to know your patients and practice the way that we all want to practice, which is individualizing care for patients based on their individual circumstances, not only medical, but also social, their life goals, their family support, being culturally sensitive uh, to, uh, to what their needs are. Uh, as our systems have grown bigger, it's harder to do that. And with more cookbook and cookie cutter medicine uh, through EMRs has been challenging. So I was very drawn to the monogram opportunity for that reason I just described, where we are able to really individualize the care of patients through an in-home model, where we get to know about all those variables, not only medical, but non-medical, social, et cetera, that allow us to identify where we can intervene. But more importantly, what's important to that patient? Is that patient you know, on the path for transplant? Is that patient on, uh, eligible for home dialysis or is that patient really on a path to conservative management? So as opposed to having a one-size-fits-all or default position, which historically has been dialysis, frankly, um, I feel very proud of the fact that we're able to go in there and, quote, you know, put our monogram on the patient, uh, but really based on what their needs are, not what the system's needs are or what expectations are. So uh, that's really where we're coming from, uh, from a, a new healthcare delivery way for patients with CKD. I appreciate you kind of jumping in there. And obviously, I'd love to hear more about um, your background, your your uh, depth of experience and working with local populations, really understanding what that local need is and um, what excites me so much about some of the conversations we've had. And obviously, your approach is that home is such an important part of, of that conversation. Um, I'd love to have you talk a bit about the barriers, because I know this is something you've talked about frequently, and I've listened to this. Um, you give these talks and some of those yeah. takeaways from from your work and I just think are, are so important. So maybe yeah. talk about those challenges in thinking about that home. Sure. Model. So so I think first and foremost, if we're talking specifically about home-based dialysis, you know, if patients A are progressing to end-stage kidney disease, that's a very traumatic time for them. You know, they aren't aware of what their options are, or they may have an impression based on someone else they've seen. ESKD tends to run in 
communities and populations at a higher rate in some areas. So patients experienced with dialysis, et cetera, may be the in-center experience where they may not have even been exposed to other opportunities. It's my firm belief that patients can do home dialysis if given the opportunity and support and not be on a rushed pathway. You know, ideally we would explain to a patient what it means and support them through that journey, depending on where they are without a with an open-ended time frame, as opposed to a, here's your first presentation and you need to decide by tomorrow. And if you don't, we'll put you in center and that's the end of it. So I, I feel that it's a dynamic process that you must revisit multiple times. We are all people and eventually can be patients as well. And being sensitive to that is very important. Uh, home dialysis barriers also you know, are from the physician side. You know, physicians are often looking for the ideal candidate for home dialysis as opposed to the patient who would benefit from it most, which is often not the ideal candidate. So patients with transportation issues, patients with system social issues often would benefit from being at home. But frankly, we don't offer to them as often as we can. So it's important to have a comprehensive approach to those patients, including removing the physician barriers, which I find are getting better but really still part of the problem uh, because it takes a lot of work up front from not only the clinician, the provider, the patient, the dialysis companies that are providing the, the dialysis and then uh, the fear of failure. So recognizing the patients will fail along the way and picking them back up and getting them back on track is important. So most importantly, this is the right nurses. So, you know, having the right nurses in those centers that are 100% dedicated to home dialysis is what makes all these programs run. So a lot of different barriers, Tim, frankly, in this area, but you know, it's a combination of, of, of undue expectations on the patient, unrealistic expectations up front, not removing social barriers to the patient's choice, uh, looking for ideal candidates from the physician's side, and lastly, not giving the patient a realistic road, saying, you know, telling them, you may have some bumps in the road, but this is still better for you than going in center. You know, 90% of physicians would choose home dialysis for themselves or a loved one, yet only 10% of patients are doing home dialysis in this country. So I think that says it all, frankly, uh, that it really is a, a, a multifactorial issue. So. Yeah, thank you. I'm so glad you, you brought that up. And you actually, you said a few things that definitely have me excited to, to dig in on the multidisciplinary care front. First of all, you're saying we, and, and that alone is already telling me there's a lot more here, just given your background as a care provider, as a nephrologist. I, I would love to hear more about education yeah. among those care team members, right? This, of course, the, the nurses drive the programs, as you're saying here, but it sounds like you know, social support and the social aspect that I imagine social workers being a, an important part of that model. Could you, could you maybe identify who some of those care partners are in, in this ecosystem and kind of what, what are those things that they are often talking to patients about? Mm -hmm. and, in helping them understand what, what's yeah, great, great question. So, you know, really it starts with upfront education and identifying those members with CKD 3B and early four, who you think as a clinician is likely to progress. So when you start having those discussions, you start planting the seeds early, long before the patient ever needs a dialytic therapy. So in my own practice habit has been a kidney function of less than 20. I think the patient's high risk and is a dialysis candidate, that's very important. Not everyone's a dialysis candidate, but they are a candidate for dialysis and or transplant. And then I personally will invite them to come to a dialysis clinic and actually see my own home dialysis clinic where they can actually meet patients who are just like themselves before they ever need dialysis, often with a six to 12 month lead time historically. Uh, those patients on home dialysis currently were actually in these patients' shoes, you know, less than a year or two ago, some longer, and had the same apprehensions, fears, and uncertainty in their own mind. And that patient to patient interaction is crucial 
to opening the patient's mind to home dialysis. That's the first and foremost to me. The added benefit of coming to the clinic is that you meet the home dialysis nurse who'll be taking care of you. So you have an early introduction to not only the nurse who's crucial to your success, but also the other care team members, which are the uh, dietitian, social worker, the clinic itself. So it takes that uh, fear out of that uh, initial meeting, which is often done when the patient starts dialysis. I think this is crucial to success and buy-in. And lastly, if a patient comes to the clinic, you have the opportunity to compare and contrast in-center dialysis to home dialysis. So again, there's a little bit of uh, marketing and a little bit of strategy, but if I, I find that if a patient meets the home dialysis patient first, spends time in the room one-on-one -on -one without the physician or nurse present, the patient ambassador teaches and explains, you, you go in after a few minutes, have the patient meet the nurse, social worker, dietitian, other staff, and then I take the opportunity to take them to the dialysis floor, at least visualize the floor and say, if you choose not to do home dialysis, there are other options, including in-center dialysis, where you might, uh, and this involves coming here every other day and spending four to five hours on a machine where we take care of you. And that may be what's right for you too, but I personally think you could do home dialysis. Uh, and I think that compare and contrast, that whole messaging I hate to use the term selling it to the patient, but really letting them visualize themselves in a chair or going home and coming back in 30 days is very, very powerful mm -hmm. and being done before they need it. So I can close the meeting by saying that, listen, I really hope you never need dialysis, but I think you might. And if you do, these are your options. And I want you to think about it long before you need it. And if God forbid you need home dialysis, you could do home and we could get you started where you could still have have your job and family and work, be a better transplant candidate and so on and so forth. But if you can't do that, we can still take care of you this way. So not making it a, a, a you know all or nothing type thing and not dissuading them really, but really letting them see themselves as that patient they just saw who's often selling themselves and say, I feel better. I, I'm on the transplant list. I didn't, I thought like you were thinking, I never thought I would need it. I didn't think I was feeling that bad. All those things peer-to-peer -peer is much better than doctor-to-patient when the doctor can't relate. So I've developed this, and I'm sure other practices do this too, but I've been doing this for over a decade. And now in my new role um, at Monogram, I basically oversee the delivery of this technique and method across uh, 34 states currently where we have patient operations right now. So we're trying to bring this model to a much bigger population and impact change, um, equalize the playing field, so to speak, uh, for patients. Amazing. It, it's just so exciting to hear, right? I mean, I know having, you know, I'm a patient now and um, hearing from other patients, you've mentioned how stressful this decision is. And, you know, you're lucky if you have the chance to, to be educated about these options ahead of time. And how great is that to be able to hear from a peer and to reduce that anxiety we know you can't learn as effectively. I'd, I'd love to hear earlier in this conversation, you mentioned, you know, 90% of physicians would choose home and 10% of patients are at home. Where are you, given that you've been doing this program for 10 years, what are you seeing as kind of the results of, of this program? Yeah, I think it's very exciting times because, you know, uh, CMS has also given very lofty goals for the country to achieve more home dialysis patients, which I think is a great thing to strive for. I think nationwide, we're seeing numbers closer to the mid-teens, approaching 20% in a lot of populations, some much higher, some much lower. Uh, you know, one of the myths about kidney care is that it's the same across the country. Uh, it couldn't be further from the truth. You know, patient populations are very heterogeneous here. The Southeast and Southwest, very challenging areas in terms of access and social determinants of health. 
So you have to customize the approach to different regions, but there's definitely momentum, Tim, towards home dialysis initiation and starts almost to the point where it may be too aggressive in some areas where we're just trying to pick people to do it and we're not as selective as we should be. Uh, home hemodialysis is underutilized, but there's more and more opportunities to do that now with new devices on the market. Uh, there's one company that's been on the market. There's new ones coming. That's going to make this much easier to do for those who a, are not perineal dialysis candidates or are perineal dialysis candidate failures who are still waiting transplant. So, you know, we have to do a job as kidney providers, really recognizing where our patient is in the journey and what's the best treatment for them and not being afraid to change. You know, and sometimes you need to go in center for a while till you go from PD to home hemo. Uh, you, we need to you need to start working on placing accesses, hemodialysis access as well as PD access at the same time for patients that may be marginal on PD, so they have a seamless transition to home hemodialysis and avoid catheters. So we can be very creative and not so um, rote in our approach. We can do better for our patients and increase that home dialysis rate. It'll never be 100%. Uh, I think 50% is quite aspirational. But I think if we get to 20 to 30% as a country, uh, we're making big strides uh, for our patients. So. Well, I'm I'm with you, with you there. Absolutely, I think that um, it's really fascinating to to kind of watch and, and to to be so optimistic about your progress in 34 states and you're trying to move the needle on a, a national question conversation, but also keep care personalized and local, um, which as you know, you're at the front and center of this challenge and, and it's, you know, we're, we're rooting for you and excited to see what you do. I, I kind of want to go into the, the last question here and frame it in a way that, you know, I want to know what is going to allow you and monogram to, uh, to see this future that we're talking about, right? Whether yeah. it's 20%, 30%, or or just having your model of personalized care for every patient across the country who needs it. Um, what is it going to take? And, and when I phrase use the term escape velocity, yeah. I mean, what is it going to take for you and for Monogram to achieve escape velocity over the next um, several years ahead of what yeah, you Yeah, great, great question. So probably a lot of different things, but I'll start with, with one. You know, first, just an acceptance that we have to bring healthcare to the patient. So, you know, payer systems that understand that will be crucial to delivering that model of care. So, you know, how do you reimburse or pay a physician or their team for going into the home and preventing something from happening as opposed to paying for an outcome or a treatment plan, i.e. dialysis? So when you have a backloaded system, it's very challenging to put resources up front where there's a lot of cost to the, to the providers, but really no financial reimbursements for the things that they're doing. So quote, value-based care. So getting paid on outcomes, using evidence-based criteria to apply to patients as opposed to ESRD means dialysis. So I think that's first and foremost. Two, you know, and, adop and adapt adopting telehealth as a more um, acceptable version of healthcare for some patients. I understand the reservations around, are you delivering the same level of care? But, you know, allowing for patients to have a, a visit, just like you and I are doing this podcast today, I can imagine a, a code podcast with a patient where you have a social worker, dietitian, physician, cardiologist, the patient's loved ones all on the call together. You know, where we're talking about a care plan, doing an advanced care plan, talking about a transplant plan, talking about living related donor transplant, as opposed to talking to a patient and then them having to disseminate the information in whatever way they heard it. So I think, you know, encouraging that and rewarding that is crucial to success and going upstream. Three, uh, you know, identifying patients that, you know, really um, won't benefit from aggressive therapies, you know, and how do you allow patients to care for them? 
So, you know, how do you allow them to be taken care of? So if I don't provide dialysis, but provide comfort care, how is that going to be viewed? And that should be viewed as a treatment, not as a failure of treatment. So I think in attitudes towards that is very important. And lastly, I think just two things, the providers, you know, engaging providers, I firmly believe providers inherently want to do the right thing. You know, they're being pushed by lots of different variable systems, pressures around, and, and physicians and clinicians adapt to the rules that they are given. So if you create the structure to be successful in terms of growing home dialysis, growing conservative care, providing polychronic support, you'll get it. But we need to do a better job there. Uh, and lastly, I think it's going to be the patients, Tim. You know, I think the patient of tomorrow, who's 35, 40, 45 today, is not going to be waiting in my, in my office for two hours to see me. They're not going to be waiting for a dialysis chair to open up. They're not going to be waiting for me to call them back. It's going to be tech driven. It's going to be on demand. It's going to be, I need it now. Who's the doctor and team that can do it? So it's going to create some competition out there to see who can do it the best, but outcomes have to be part of, of that. So I think all those things, if we can address, identify and tackle, we can really improve the lives of our kidney patients uh, and all patients, frankly, across the country by focusing upstream and preventing downstream complications, and we get complications, address them in an evidence-based way, not a throw the kitchen sink at them way. You know, and I think that's where we have a lot of opportunity I'm excited about. And we're, I think we're seeing a lot of change. Your podcast, you know, is, is focusing on people that are all in this space who are thinking that way. And it's going to take the whole team to do it from the, the primary care doctor, social worker, dietitian, nephrologist, cardiologist, dialysis provider, access surgeon, you name it. We all have to have a skin in the game here to do it. Well, I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing. I'm definitely keeping track here and we're doing what we can to to get the message out, to raise awareness and obviously to, to shine a light on on the important work that organizations like yours are doing. So uh, thank you for, for coming on T-10. Always good to see you and, uh, and appreciate it. Hopefully we'll talk again yeah, soon. Thank you for the invite. Really, really enjoyed it. Uh,